Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we're talking about the arts and culture that reflect San Diego's diversity. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's the conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. A program with neurodivergent artists provides an inclusive form of expression. Just really honestly seeing things like this, an exhibition where local artists are coming together in collaboration with our network of artists to enjoy work together, that's a huge celebration for us. Plus, a panel of food writers talk cuisine and immigration. Then we'll look back at a decade of the Latino Film Festival and the film recommendations that explore identity. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Abstract art and inclusivity will be celebrated at an upcoming exhibit organized by local nonprofit Revision. It will feature over 20 local professional artists. Joy Bow is the founder and director of Revision. She joins us to talk about the importance of inclusion in art. Joy, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So the exhibit will feature work by Revision's artists in residence. Can you tell me more about that program and the artists who are participating in it? Yes. So Revision hosts a creative arts program um, as part of our nonprofit organization. Our mission is to provide inclusive access to art, culture, and environmental education. Um, so we have two studios in uh, located in La Mesa and Hillcrest. And within those two locations, we have around 30 artists who are uh, working out of the shared workspaces all of which who are neurodivergent uh, or adults with developmental disabilities. And when people walk into the exhibit, what will they see? Describe it for me. Well, a very colorful, playful display of 
a variety of mediums. We have some great pieces that are ceramic. We have uh, woven wall hangings, acrylic paintings, mixed media pieces, um, all of which really fit the theme uh, that celebrates one of our revision artists named Joey Thurston. Uh, he's an abstract painter, weaver, and sculptor. And you know, many of the artists at Revision, as you've mentioned, are, are neurodivergent or have developmental disabilities. How does Revision help them with their craft and, and provide them creative opportunities? Well, our creative arts program uh, that's been in operation since 2017 offers a place for these artists with disabilities um, to work alongside professionals uh, where they get to develop their skills, brand their own businesses, um, and generally just build a creative community. Um, so this really creates an equitable opportunity for marginalized individuals. So um, besides the day-to-day -day creative arts program within the studios, we also facilitate community projects. Um, like public art installations, neighborhood cleanups, things like that, where we can really merge the opportunity for neurodivergent individuals to interact with typical individuals in the community. And what kinds of stereotypes are often perpetuated about neurodiverse people? It's a good question. I think a lot of times people might not know how to make the first step in interacting with someone that looks differently or communicates differently. I think because of those areas of, you know, non-practice, people tend to shy away from the opportunities to act like themselves and, and um, you know, just interact in normal situations. And I feel like having a space like Revision and having artists working together sort of provides the opportunity for practice. With that, how does art help combat that? Well, I feel like art is a great unifier. I feel like people who might communicate differently, maybe non-verbally, have sometimes have a gift of communicating through art and um, sharing their feelings and experiences in a visual way. And I, I feel like a lot of people can relate to the themes and patterns that are represented sometimes in artwork. You don't necessarily know the backstory of an individual while viewing the art, you're just sort of interacting with the art itself. And I feel like that provides an opportunity for a true connection. Hmm. And, you know, like you mentioned before, sometimes it is difficult for some people to express themselves. Art is one of the greatest means of expression. Uh, has this program helped people to express themselves in different ways, not only creatively, but personally? Yes, definitely. I think that is my greatest achievement is seeing the natural relationships and connections that are forming just by having the opportunity to work in a shared space. Um, a lot of the artists who started our program just as beginners or emergent artists have since built a whole community of followers and supporters. Um, they sell their artwork. And, you know, a lot of people look forward to meeting them in person. They have a presence online and they, they you know, enjoy the opportunity to meet them. And just seeing the confidence 
and pride that grows within the individuals through those experiences really is truly uh, just such an empowering experience for myself and for the individuals involved. And with all of the artists you've worked with so far, whether it's through the creative arts program or, or just in studio, what are some successes you've seen? Oh, gosh. Well, we've we've had quite a few successes this year alone. Um, earlier in the year, we were given the opportunity to install a permanent mural at the waterfront park. Um, very big deal that the county reached out to us directly and a group of our resident artists were able to participate in uh, the entire project from concept to completion. And uh, that's a, a huge statement for all of San Diego to visit it's in a very public place. And that provides a, a lot of opportunity for exposure. Um, we currently have some products uh, in the gift shop at the New Children's Museum downtown handmade items from the revision artist. Uh, they, you know, get to show what they're doing and uh, share their businesses. And obviously they get a, a large cut of the sales. That's a huge win. And just really honestly seeing things like this, an exhibition where local artists are coming together in collaboration with our network of artists to enjoy work together. That's a huge celebration for us. And you mentioned Joe Thurston will be featured at the exhibit. Did he come to Revision through the program? Yes. So Joey has been a part of Revision for a few years now. He's been an artist since uh, he was a child. And um, he has been practicing all different types of mediums throughout the last few years. And we have really just enjoyed getting to know him and feel like he's an extremely talented artist. So Outside the Line is highlighting his work and inviting the community to participate in sharing their work that is reminiscent of his signature style. Can you describe Joe Thurston's signature style for us and what that looks like? His signature style is bold, bright, abstract patterns. He uses a lot of mixed media when he's producing a painting. So he'll mix watercolor with ink. Um, he also is a weaver and a sculptor. So he makes really playful pieces. He uses a lot of untraditional materials. So he will make sculptures out of tape, layers and layers of tape and paper, almost like a, a unique style of paper mache. And he's really recognized for his ability to pair colors really well together. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with Joy Bow, founder and director of Revision, about the upcoming Outside the Line exhibit. And Joy, you've got more than 15 years of experience working in social services. I'm curious, how did you find or how did you first get introduced to art and what led you to create Revision? Well, I have always enjoyed being around really authentic people and situations in my life have led me to pursue art as a way for me to personally express myself. 
And uh, years ago, I volunteered at a place called Sophie's Gallery. A good friend of mine, Wendy Morris, introduced me to some other really progressive art studios in the Bay Area. And we just really kind of talked a lot about how amazing it would be to start something that felt different than typical day programs. Um, we are not a day program and, uh, you know, the, the concept of an art studio where we can work alongside adults with developmental disabilities in a way that is very respectful um, sort of emerged from conversations throughout the years. And um, I just really wanted to do something that I felt like was needed in San Diego and something that I I personally feel like is my calling. Um, I love my job. I love everyone that I work with and really grateful to have such a great team of supporters and creative mentors who keep that vision alive. Yeah. You know, what does it take to build a space that is inclusive to people of all abilities? It takes really good communication, I would say. Um, A lot of people have misconceptions about working with people with disabilities. Um, Yes, it's true. There is a lot of support that happens behind the scenes. You know, every day is different. Um, You have to have a lot of flexibility. Sometimes, yes, you do have to have a lot of patience. But truthfully, it's really enjoyable. It's a lot of fun. Um, The personalities of all the people that we work alongside keep us constantly entertained. I'm continuously inspired by the artwork that's produced. And it just really fills me up. I, I thoroughly enjoy being a part of Revision and just seeing how it impacts everyone positively when when you feel like there's a space where you can truly be who you are. I, I love that part. Yeah. Well, aside from the exhibit, what else is in store for Revision and all the artists? Well, this particular exhibit is the first of an ongoing series. Um, Revision will be hosting and extending open calls to artists. So any artisan can participate in themes that are centered around a Revision resident artist. So we will continue to do this where we highlight an individual in our program and um, invite the community to be a part of an exhibition. And then we also have workshops. We have kids camps with Artbeat San Diego that we host and all sorts of opportunities to collaborate through our mission to provide inclusive access, environmental education, and community. I've been speaking with Joy Bow, founder and director of Revision. The Outside the Line exhibit will take place this Saturday, September 30th from 3 to 6 p.m. It will be featured in their La Mesa Gallery. Joy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Coming up, we'll tell you about a panel of food writers who will discuss the intersection of cuisine and immigration. It's very important that we continue to talk about food because food continues to keep us universal in our dreams and aspirations, but it is also the immigrant voice that everybody in the community needs to hear. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Some of San Diego's finest immigrant food writers will gather at the Mengay on Monday to discuss the intersection of food and immigration with representatives from New Roots Farm. KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans sat down with some of the panelists to talk about food, home, and exile. Here's her conversation with writers Madhushri Ghosh, Jane Mushunets, and Huda Al-Marashi. I would like to start by asking each of you about your latest projects. Madhushri, your recent memoir is Kabar. Can you tell us about this book? Sure. Kabar, an Immigrant Journey, is literally that. It is uh, a, a collection of essays, and it's a food narrative memoir using food to look at journeys that immigrants, migrants, and indentured people, especially from South Asia, have made. And this is intertwined with my own story, my own journey as the daughter of uh, refugees and an immigrant myself to America, uh, working in science and then moving into writing about food and using food as a social justice tool. And Jane, your poetry collection is called All the Bad Girls Wear Russian Accents. That came out earlier this year. Can you tell me a little about this collection? Sure. So as the title suggests, it is a little bit cheeky. Some of the poems in the collection are a bit wry, but they deal with some difficult topics. Obviously, because I am originally from Ukraine, this year and this last year in particular, the invasion of the home country has really come to the forefront for a lot of people who not necessarily previously knew about Ukraine. So the poetry there explores my role as somebody who came here as a Jewish Russian speaking Ukrainian immigrant from the Soviet Union in light of what's happening today and explores the different angles of how we survive, how we use humor, how we use food, how we use our connection to the homeland to forge new connections here and survive. And Jane, you also run a food blog, Table M. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) So that one, I have to give credit to my husband, Inga Mushinets, who himself has some immigrant background. His father is Czech-German. His mother is American by way of Sweden. And when we first got together, we loved sharing all our different recipes. And he loved taking photos of them. And eventually, we just had so many that we started this Table M food blog at first for our friends, and then it grew. Amazing. And Huda, you have a memoir, First Comes Marriage, My Not-So-Typical American Love Story. Can you tell me a little bit about your work? Yeah, my work always circles back to my Iraqi-American and my Muslim identities. So First Comes Marriage was a a look at uh, debunking the stereotypes around arranged marriage, telling the story of how I 
uh, came to meet and marry my husband. We are both the children of Iraqi immigrants and our families came to the U.S. in the early 1980s. And it's the story of how they always wished for us to get married and kind of looking at it through the lens of was this really an arranged marriage? Does it fit the stereotypes that people in the West think of arranged marriage? And Grounded actually came out in May, and it's a collaboration with three other Muslim authors. And this was our uh, our hope to tell a story of Muslim joy. You know, a lot of our stories get told through the lens of our trauma and the more difficult challenges and experiences we face. And this was the story of four Muslim kids who go on an adventure in an airport to find a missing cat. And we just wanted our children to be able to see themselves in kind of the kind of adventure stories that other children get to see themselves in. No, that sounds great. I wanted to bring this conversation around to food. Um, most conversations I want to bring around to food. But for each of you, why does writing about the immigrant experience find its root in food for you? Or maybe it's vice versa, that food writing inevitably ends up being about immigration. Um, Madhushri, can you start us off talking a little bit about that intersection of food and, and migration? Sure. I I would like to say that I think every conversation, no matter if you're an immigrant or not, is around food. Mm-hmm. Because when you're looking at us traveling, if you have been here for multiple generations, you still have traveled, let's say, from the East Coast to the West Coast or vice versa. You've gone to a new town. And what what happens to you and why is it universal is that no matter what, it's the comfort that you got when you were a child with a certain recipe, a certain action, a certain Uh, going to the market to buy something with your parent, with your caregiver, is the story of comfort, is the story of love. So for immigrants uh, like myself, uh, when I came here to graduate school and I was working in science, um, while your, your brain is very logical, making logical decisions, you have given up your home. And so you have given up your home uh, willingly. So the immigrant journey really is always going back to base, back to home, you know, touching your 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 memories that you you created when you were a child and the comfort that it created when when you were growing up. How do you bring your home to your adopted place? That's the question of that every immigrant and children of immigrants struggle with. How do you bring that joy, that wonderful land um and that comes through food. Food is the only thing that travels, in my opinion, the only thing that travels with you. Whether you're looking at migration, immigration, or indenture, whether you're looking at um, you know, forced slavery that this country uh, has subjected many, many, many generations of people, whether it's talking about migrant workers uh, coming to this land because they were indentured, or it's talking about um, people like us who came here because we had a choice to come here. We came here for uh, better opportunities, but we also brought with us the love for a land that was um, that's now gone. My father was, uh, was a refugee. I've talked about it on my TEDx talk. Uh, he was a refugee, and so for him, to India. And so for him, home was Bangladesh, what's now Bangladesh. And so everything in India was bigger, uh, whatever he, he 
ate, whether it was a cauliflower, whether it was a fish, the roses were more fragrant. I say, tell the story over and over again, because that's how you keep that memory alive. So for me, it's very important that we continue to talk about food because food continues to keep us universal in our dreams and aspirations. But it is also the immigrant voice that everybody in the community needs to hear. And Jane, how about for you? Can you talk a little bit about where that where that intersection of food and migration shows up in your work? Sure. I was just thinking about what Madhushri said and how much I really relate to that. And that's the thing, isn't it? We all can relate to the comfort and the memory that food brings for us. And I think that's why we always end up talking about food all the time. And also about when we talk about our homeland and how it's different or the same here, we all have to eat. And it's such an intimate thing putting, when you think about it, what you put in your mouth at the same time with your mouth, you tell your story too. So it's this exchange that is created around a meal, around the um, conversations that happen in the kitchen. And the kitchen is, everyone says, you know, the kitchen is the heart of the home. And there's a reason. And it's funny because... Uh, my mom and my aunties are always, they're always in the kitchen. Anytime you come in, even if they're not in the kitchen, when you started, they will make their way to the kitchen because of course you must be hungry. Of course there must be tea. It does not matter if it was just lunchtime. There's a sense of hospitality, of welcome that you can create so easily and quickly with just a cup of tea, with just offering someone, if they would like something to eat or something to drink. And I think that is just a language, a food becomes a language for us to house all the ingredients that we connect with that make up our stories. And as I was writing, I was surprised, especially because poetry uses so much metaphor, I was quite surprised how often recipes and foods sort of popped up in the story as a shortcut. Because you can say something like avocado or California roll, uh, taco or kasha, and immediately it sparks an entire story behind that word. And I've mentioned a bunch of uh, foods that I love to eat that are local here that are from the Mexican culture because we're in San Diego. And I love that. I love that I'm this big mix in a bigger mix of cultures. Because all the stories that I bring from my Jewish heritage, Ukrainian, Russian, the marriage that I'm in, the community in which I live, exposes us to all of these different ways in which we can share similar things, like our love for food, and still bring in our unique flavors and differences. I think that's incredibly powerful. Huda, what about you? Where where does that intersection lie in your work? I think when we're talking about immigration, there's also the piece of exile that we have to consider is that there's a separation. There's a layers of inaccessibility, right? So for Iraqi immigrants, especially the ones that came um, in earlier generations, there was no going home. The situation wasn't one that allowed for easy travel. So it was a time where you were not flying back regularly. It was a time where phone calls were expensive because we didn't have internet access. And then there was a time where um, 
you know, language transmission was even harder pre-internet. Right now, there's so many resources online, fantastic resources. And I've actually been able to expose my children to more Arabic lessons than I was able to have access to as a child growing up in the U.S. But food is always accessible. Food is the thing that we can make in our kitchens, we can make in our homes, and we can easily pass on. And food is was the center of our identity. Other parts of your identity can be complicated. They can be layered. You don't know quite where you fit. Where do I straddle this hyphen between my American and my Arab and my Muslim identity? But the food belongs. The food is ours. The food goes down easily. And, you know, it always struck me how even one generation later, these children who were born of this American-born mother, when they were small, it was the, the foods that I grew up with that always seemed to be the safe food that I knew if I fed them, it would get eaten and they would be nourished and taken care of. And it was always our rice. And Iraqis are known for this stew. And it's similar to the stews that Persians make as well. Uh, you know, border neighbors always share similar cuisines. And I think it's more common to eat Persian food in the U.S., so that might be a touchstone for other people to connect with, you know, like a gorma sebzi. You know, we call it something else. We call it margit sebzi. It's the same kind of food. And when you put it on top of the rice, those were the things that I always knew my kids would eat. They would be full. They would be happy. And that was an uncomplicated thing to pass down. I just wanted to add to that, that sebzi in, in Persian, sebzi in, in Arabic, and sabzi in Hindi remains the same. And in Bengali, it's shobji. So if you really look at it, borders are man-made, human-made. So if you look at how food travels, it travels east to west and west to east. And that's why we have so many ways of describing the same thing. So it brings us the same kind of joy when you're looking at immigrant food. I love that. I want to ask one more question, and it's about San Diego, and it's about the writing community, in particular food writing, um, and maybe not in the traditional sense of being a food writer, but is San Diego a place that there is like a, a growing or, or quietly growing food writing scene? Um, yes, there is a huge, huge food writing community. Um, if you're looking at the San Diego Writers Festival, you'll see quite a few of them there. Um, you have Michelle Levi, who's really started this beautiful underground club, so to speak, of writers who talk about their writing. San Diego Magazine is doing amazing work. Um, I've written for them and I love writing for, for them because they're really talking not just about food, as in here's a new restaurant or here's a new chef, but also really talking about what food means to San Diegans right now. It isn't just about a recipe. It isn't just about a particular chef. It is about where do you get your ingredients? How do you get them? And there are many, many writers who are talking about this, even if it is from the perspective of an adventure travel, even if it is from the perspective of destination travel. I think our San Diego community has always been there. We just need to start acknowledging them more. Absolutely. This is Jane speaking. I completely chime in with the San Diego Writers Festival, uh, which is happening in April this year. And that's a fantastic 
a group of writers, not just food and travel writers, but all sorts of writers in San Diego. And then Michelle Bigley has started another underground uh, kind of initiative, a monthly meeting called Wandering Words, which features a lot of food and travel writers as well. And then, of course, Edible Magazine is another magazine, which is not just in San Diego, but also in San Diego. And it features a lot of fantastic stories about local cuisine and food production. That was KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans talking with writers Madushri Ghosh, Jane Mushinitz, and Huda Al-Marashi. Gupshup Immigrant Food Tasting and Stories is at 6.30 p.m. Monday at the Mingay. Coming up, a look back at a decade of Latino films featured in the Latino Film Festival. I really wanted to create a list that not only showed what it's like to be Latinx identifying in the United States, but what it might mean to be Latino in Mexico, in Central America, in South America. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. To celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, KPBS film critic Beth Accomando sat down with San Diego Latino Film Festival programmer Moises Esparza to look back over 10 years of Latinx films with a few unique suggestions on films to watch. So Moises, we are going to put together a list of films to suggest to people to watch So give us a little sense of what you were looking for in this list. And I know this is kind of like picking your favorite child, so I understand the difficulty. But um, give us a little sense of what elements were important to include. When you brought on this proposal of me highlighting some key films from my years as a curator, I really had no idea how this list would take form, to be honest. So I opened up my old documents of programming from 2015 and 2014 and and so on. And I just started picking titles that really like stuck out to me first. Like, oh, that was an amazing film. Oh, that was an amazing film. And then what I did was I tried to, once I had my, my initial list, I tried to diversify, have a couple of documentaries, have films that talk about the indigenous experience, talk films that talk about the Afro-Latinx experience, um, some crowd pleasers, and then some honest-to-goodness provocations. So that's kind of how I landed on the films that I'm presenting with you today. Not to say that there aren't thousands and thousands of other amazing films. I mean, I could have picked them all, to be honest, and it would have been a great list. But on this theme of Latinx Heritage Month, I really wanted to create a list that not only showed what it's like to be Latinx identifying in the United States, but what it might mean to be Latino in Mexico, in Central America, 
in South America and to maybe think of ourselves less as one single entity and to start recognizing that there are so many latitudes and verisimilitudes between Latinos, you know, we are so different from region to region to region. And the sooner we start opening our eyes to those experiences, I think the sooner we'll create some sort of interconnectedness. So what I'm offering is a pretty broad perspective of the films that I've programmed. But I also do think that it's a sampling, a, a pretty honest sampling of where the Latinx film industry was 10 years ago and where it is today. One thing I want to prepare people for is this is not a list of necessarily the big box office Latino films, the biggest names behind the camera. This is a very kind of personal list to highlight some really amazing films. Absolutely. It's very personal. I mean, it's all subjective also. I'm not saying these are the best films. These are films that have stood out to me that I've shared with audiences here in San Diego that I think have advanced viewing behaviors and have asked our audience to be more open and receptive uh, to new and exciting things. So again, it's not a definitive list, but it is a list of films that have stood out to me and that I wanted to share. And, you know, I just hope that, you know, people just take away from the list that there is such a rich diversity of Latinx cinema available. And I guarantee you that a lot of these films are available on some sort of streaming platform that you can easily access. So I encourage all of you to watch these movies. But before we start talking about these films, you kind of have an announcement for us. Yes. So after 10 years working in the programming department here at the Media Arts Center San Diego, through the San Diego Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema, I'm currently transitioning into a new role. The new role is focused on development and fundraising. I am excited to embark on this new adventure. I'm excited to usher in new curatorial voices for both of these programs. I'm really excited to be focused on long-term planning for both the San Diego Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema. I wish you the best, and wherever you are working, you are going to make great things happen, but I am going to miss your curation because I have always found you to be an amazingly thoughtful programmer who picks some amazing films every year. But we are going to benefit right now from the fact that you're going to look back on this 10 years and painfully choose just a few titles to share with us. And I'm not sure where you might want to start, but a lot of your films kind of feel like road trips and journeys. So maybe pick a journey, a road trip to start with. Yes, uh, thank you, Beth. That's such an interesting point. I do think that during my tenure here as programming manager, I have seen a lot of films that recontextualize the road movie or the adventure movie. Um, And I think a great place to start and to situate ourselves uh, within sort of uh, my programming philosophy is with Tatiana Hueso's documentary, Tempestad, which means storm. It's not a typical road movie in the sense that you have two sidekicks embarking on a fantastic adventure. Um, It's actually a portrait of Mexico at a crossroads as it has an internal reckoning with all of the cartel violence that has been so prevalent for so many years now. The film itself focuses on two stories. One of them is 
focused on a woman uh, who was wrongfully convicted of human trafficking, and she's sent to a prison where her family's forced to pay for her safety every week. And the second story that we learn about through this documentary is about a circus performer who fights against all odds to find out what happened to her missing daughter. Now, as I described the movie, you might be wondering, like, how is this a road film? And where that comes in is through the visuals of the film. What you see as you hear the narration of these women telling their stories is footage of empty Mexican highways, countrysides, security checkpoints. Circus scenes. So what you get is kind of this idea that the camera's traveling from north to south and south to north of Mexico and capturing what it's like to live in this almost abyss in a sense. Uh, So the camera travels extensively as you're learning about the lives of these women and what does this emptiness convey to the viewer? To me, it conveys horror and terror. And in a way, I think we've been conditioned to look at these genres as blood and guts and jump scares. But what this film proposes is that maybe what's more terrifying is the emptiness and what happens when we become so acclimated to hearing about these stories of violence and torture and we become numb to it. So what we're presenting as we're watching the movie is kind of this landscape that we're able to project kind of our own emotions onto as we're receiving kind of this narration from these two survivors. Well, and one of the things I've also noticed about a lot of your choices is you don't necessarily like films that are strictly linear and narrative or that are very conventional in their structure. And one that was really fascinating is Zama. Don Diego de Zama. Yes, you're completely correct. I don't really love a conventional narrative structure. I like films that feel elliptical. I like films that are more about a sensory experience, a poetic experience. And that to me presents a lot of excitement. So Lucrecia Martel's Sama is a wonderful example of this. It's a film that interrogates colonialism in South America. It's a film that's provocative from the first sequence. Very briefly, the protagonist, Don Diego de Zama, is spying on naked women bathing and they call him a voyeur. Miran! Miran! And what are we doing as viewers also? We're voyeurs ourselves, we're looking. So what transpires is after he's caught watching these women bathe, one of them grabs his ankle. It's almost a physical provocation. They, they have a tussle. So that to me draws me in as a viewer from the get-go. It says, this film is asking you to engage. And then what follows this it's a very elliptical narrative that sometimes you f- that as you're watching the film, you feel like, okay, where's this film going? What is the point? But the point of the film is to describe visually, cinematically, how this man who is an employee of the Spanish crown in the 18th century feels stuck on the Paraguayan coast. And he's waiting for these transfer papers that never come. And as he waits, madness creeps in. So as you're watching the film, the film's pace is very leisurely. 
is very passive, that you yourself feel the sense of, of being captive in a sense. And you want him to get out of these circumstances. You want him to escape. But that's not really the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is to describe the hellish conditions that were brought upon by colonialism. So in a way, by this provocation that I recalled earlier as voyeurs, we're also maybe being asked to question, are, have we been complicit in this colonialist tradition? Uh, the film is rewarding in that this weight that you have really pays off in the third act, which really ramps up the violence and the thrills, and it feels like a much more conventional adventure film. But even as it applies more conventional sensibilities, the filmmaker Lucrecia Martel, who has described as being a horror fanatic herself, she says she has learned from that tradition, she finds ways to pull you know, the rug under our feet just as we're thinking we're figuring out where the film is going, she does some really fascinating twists towards the end of the film. So Zama is a film that plays with time, provocations. It's also very critical of a colonialist tradition. And it, the film itself is a labor of love. I mean, I think there were like 20 producers on the film. It took four years to get the funding together. And even I remember when I was watching the, f the film for the first time, when you're watching an international film, you see all the funders at the beginning. <laughs> and it was a very long kind of funders zone. I thought, wow, it's amazing that for Lucrecia Martel, who is an established filmmaker, she had to really fight to get the funding together for this film. And again, I'm really glad to have been able to program it during my tenure here. Now, a lot of these films are a bit provocative in terms of content and structure, but sometimes you also have liked some that are a little more of the crowd-pleaser kind of genre, and one of those involves young children looking for treasure. <laughs> yes, so a question I get constantly asked by patrons of Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema is, why are there no family movies? Um, and Tesoros is a movie I want to point out as being so accessible to everyone and so crowd-pleasing, but also has its own provocative messaging. Like you said, the film is about a group of students, young students, uh, who live in the Mexican Pacific coast, who decide that one of their maps that has an X on it, accessible through an electronic device, looks very similar to their town to where they live and they notice an X. So they become convinced that there's a treasure. What's so amazing with this movie and thrilling is that it pushes forward this narrative that both adults and young kids can participate in adventures together. I think when we watch a lot of conventional family films, there's the adult world and the kids world. And what this movie does is that it merges the two of them and emphasizes that with collaboration and more importantly, community building, you can achieve great things and you can embark on amazing adventures that will come to define your young, young existence. So at the Sotos, when I first saw it, I, I'll, I'll be a bit corny. It did make me feel in a sense that I was watching something like the Goonies or E.T. or one of these films that really captured my imagination when I was very young. And to see it as an adult and to be charmed and to be disarmed and to just be kind of washed over with euphoria really about seeing a film that really emphasizes the importance of community, I thought was almost almost radical in, 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 in a sense. So I encourage 
families to watch the Sotos directed by Maria Novato, who in her own right is one of the most acclaimed filmmakers in Mexico. Um, and the Sotos is just kind of a gift of a movie. All right. I want to thank you very much for going over 10 years of your work here. Thank you so much, Beth. That was Beth Acamando speaking with San Diego Latino Film Festival's outgoing programmer, Moises Esparza. Their full interview can be heard Friday on Cinema Junkie Podcast, and a complete list of the films will also be up on the KPBS website. That's our show for today. If you missed anything, you can always find the KPBS Midday Edition podcast on your favorite app. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. The Roundtable is here tomorrow at noon. I want to thank our Midday Edition team. Producers are Juliana Domingo, Andrew Bracken, and Brooke Ruth. Producer assistants are Laura McCaffrey and Ariana Clay. Art segment contributors are Beth Acomando and Julia Dixon-Evans. Our technical producers are Adrian Villalobos and Rebecca Chacon. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend, everyone. I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.